At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia, was recently hung up on by Donald Trump. And now, the Australian Liberal Party leader, though it's not really that liberal, it's just branding, it's kind of conservative party. Anyway, the Lib leader is facing another disconnection. Corey Bernardi, a senator who gives the governing coalition a slim plurality in the Senate, says he's leaving. He wants to form his own party, the Conservative Party, and befitting a nation where 90% of the populace lives on a coast, he cloaked his decision in a churning, wending, nautical metaphor. When, as a younger man, I joined the ship of state, I was in awe of its traditions and the great captains that had guided us on our way. But now, as the seas through which we sail become ever more challenging, The respect for the values and principles that have served us well seem to have been set aside for expedient, self-serving, short-term ends. That approach has not served our nation well. And yet, after all that seafaring, he capped it with the most terrestrial of cliches. Every journey begins with a first step. Today, Mr. President, I take that first step. Now, doesn't that mean you're going to drown with that step? Richard Di Natale of the Green Party took to the Australian Senate right afterwards two things about the visuals you should know. The first thing is that Corey Bernardi is the size of a college basketball power forward. In Senator Bernardi, we have six and a half foot of ego, but not an inch of integrity. Now, another thing you should know is that the whole backdrop to all this, the Australian Senate, it's maroon. It's shockingly maroon, kind of magenta at times, but mostly maroon. And maybe that is the proper nautical metaphor for how Malcolm Turnbull feels. I have no wallaby in this fight, except for the fact that if Malcolm Turnbull's government crumbles, Trump will take credit. Oh, the tweets. Oh, the snarky asides. I won't be able to take it. So I find myself aligned with the governing party of Australia, where I disagree with them on the issues, but I need to deny Trump this victory. On the show today, wacky legislative news from here, right here in America. But first to the executive branch, the former Secretary of Health and Human Services. You might know her from such Supreme Court cases as King versus Sibelius. Yeah, it became King versus Burwell. But like with the first edition of a novel, the original is worth much more on eBay. It's Kathleen Sibelius. Kathleen Sibelius was the Health and Human Services Secretary under President Obama, also a former governor of Kansas, which we will get into. And so let's talk all things ACA and Sunflower State. Hello. How are you? 
I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So since Obamacare, the ACA, since it's now the GOPs, they face the reality that other than through the use of genies, it's going to be hard to cover all the people at lower prices with better care and a website that always works. And so I was thinking, and I think a lot of people were, well, they're going to be very hesitant to invite the chaos of whatever version of repeal and replace they endorse. And yet in the last week, I've been looking at what's going on in American politics and I've begun to rethink that. Maybe they, or at least the administration, is not so chaos adverse after all. What do you think? It's hard to tell. I think the White House seems to be operating pretty unilaterally and marching along with executive order, often to the surprise, it seems, of some of their newly appointed team who um, doesn't seem to be aware of what is happening or consulted about what is happening. I think with the ACA, it's going to be a bit different. Most of what has to happen with the ACA actually has to go through Congress since the Affordable Care Act is a law. And in order to repeal or replace, they actually have to pass something in Congress. So we may not see as much executive order chaos as we've seen uh, in the past. And in fact, the one executive order issued about the ACA is what was always going to happen, which is that cabinet secretaries should do what they can within the parameters of the law to do something. Yeah, it's not much of an executive order. It's just kind of a statement of uh, policy or hope. Yes, I think you're right. Congress will be driving the bus. They're much more, they're more conventional politicians. They have to deal with their constituents, not whatever the Trump presidency perceives as his constituency. So what are third rails that they won't cross? Well, it's interesting to listen to the president who promises health insurance for everybody, promises not to eliminate the rules where insurance companies can't pick and choose who gets coverage. So everybody would have coverage regardless if they had a pre-existing condition or not, and promises better care at a lower price. That package, I think, would be wildly supported and endorsed by everyone who is a believer in the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. And I'm not sure anybody knows how to deliver that, but the promise sounds very encouraging. Congress has a very different language. Congress talks about access, not insurance. They use proposals that have to do with high-risk pools, which, again, divide people into healthy and pre-existing conditions. That's what a high-risk pool is. You take everybody who is ill and put them out of the market. You put them in a pot and provide some sort of coverage, but not full insurance. The concepts most Republicans in Congress are proposing as alternatives we have seen before, have been failures over time. I ran a high-risk pool in Kansas as the insurance commissioner. It doesn't work. It's very expensive. Very few people had an opportunity to participate, and it is not in any way, shape, or form real insurance coverage for those who really need it. Were you thrust into running that, or did you think it was a good idea when it started? 
No, it it was in place. I inherited it. We had fewer than 2,000 people at any time over the eight years I was commissioner be able to participate. And we heard desperate stories each and every day from folks who said, I am desperate for coverage. I can't possibly pay the premiums associated with this plan. Is there any other alternative for me? And we would have to tell them no. I want to ask you one question about the politics. I th- last week, for the first time, Gallup showed that the ACA was more popular than unpopular. <laughs> and I want, yeah, you take it away. People are going to feel threatened. And I wonder if the Obama administration overestimated the extent to which people would rally around this once they got it and once it became implemented. Perhaps the people who received uh, health care liked it, but the numbers never really moved in a significant positive direction, even after it was in place and functioning for a couple of years. So was that an overestimation on your part? Well, it probably was an overestimation, but I think from the outset, what we knew is that the people who actually were directly implicated with Obamacare were a small slice of the population. So a lot of what you see in polls are people who have had their own coverage in place. Their coverage has not changed. Um, Anything bad that happens, you know, a higher deductible in their workplace or they lose their doctor and their health plan, they blame potentially on Obamacare, and yet it it really didn't have a connection. In some ways, is not terribly surprising. I think the polls of the people who actually signed up for coverage, got coverage, have always been people like their care. They feel like they're getting a good deal. They're thrilled to finally have insurance. But the general population who actually were not directly signing up and rolling, paying for coverage, I, I think has been mixed. I'm I'm thrilled that, you know, finally the general population is saying we think this law should be fixed, not scrapped. We think having basic health care for everybody makes sense. Yes, we'd like all of our prices to go down. Yes, we'd like to pay less for drugs. Yes, we'd like better care at lower cost. Everybody, I think, agrees on those goals. But there seems to be a change in the conversation where now the majority of Americans say health care should be available to everybody. That was not the case before President Obama was elected. So I want to ask you about Kansas. And it seems to me that to some extent, in this in this regard, Kansas is a little bit of a microcosm of America. To go from an, uh, an election where Kathleen Sebelius is elected to where Sam Brownback <laughs> is elected. And I know your lieutenant governor, Mark Parkinson, served out your term. But the gap between those two politicians, it somewhat reflects the country as a whole. To go from, oh, we're a country that likes Barack Obama to we're a country that likes Donald Trump. And that just seems shocking to me. Is that a consequence of human nature, American politics? What? Well, I think there may be a couple of different things operating. In Kansas, at least, I give then-Senator Brownback credit for doing a very good job in clearing the primary field when he ran in 2010. He'd been working on that for a while. He was the most conservative Republican to get the Republican nomination in decades. So Kansas had gone back and forth between Republican governors who were moderates and Democratic governors kind of staying in a broad middle ground. 
Sam Brownback was a big departure from that. And there wasn't a strong Democrat running for a whole variety of reasons. What I think is interesting, and, and you're absolutely right, you're seeing this huge shift then at the national level from eight years of Barack Obama to um, a Trump presidency. But what we saw in Kansas in 2016 elections was a return to a much more moderate majority. There were a, a number of very conservative candidates in the legislature who had been handpicked, recruited, funded by Governor Brownback, who were defeated in their primaries in August, and another um, number who were defeated by Democrats in November, so that there no longer is a conservative working majority in the legislature. The Republicans still have the majority, but it's back to looking like much of the old coalition days. So I would say that, yes, Kansas went on a big swing. There were as many Democrats as Republicans in the last 50 years who served as governors in Kansas. And I would say we all were kind of middle middle ground, common ground folks. This was a real departure. But Kansans who voted in November said enough. Well, this also shows that on the state level, voters want services. They want competency. These are their demands. It opens the door for someone, no matter what the party, um, if they're viewed as a good, competent executive, voters will give them a chance. In the Northeast, a Republican can get elected. In uh, other parts of the country, in the South, you know, a Democrat in Kentucky, a Democrat can get elected even when they're not viable on the national level. People have this definition of government as something that should work for them on the state level. And yet, even though we're a collection of 50 states, you add them together and the sum total, the electorate does not act like that on the national level. The electorate acts, you know, a little crazy uh, at times on the national level. And I'm wondering why you think that is. Why, why aren't we just as practical on the state level as we are on the national level? I do believe the numbers that say 3 million additional voters voted for Hillary Clinton than yes, voted for Donald Trump. You're not, you're not buying into and, the mass um, of illegals. Okay. <laughs> that's correct. Uh, I mean, what that says to me is the majority of American voters did not actually have the wild swing that we've just been talking about. In fact, this election was a very narrowly divided election among two candidates who, frankly, nobody really liked. Um, I think that we saw much of the same thing in Kansas uh, with the re-election of Governor Brownback. Everyone it looked as if he may well be defeated for re-election. He very narrowly won, but he won with a minority of the vote. There was a third-party candidate who took a little slice off the top. So if you, there were more voters in Kansas who voted against him than voted for him, and in spite of that, he got a second term. I think at the end of the day, most people do want competency, uh, trying to make a connection between federal departments and what's happening to people on the ground is is often more complicated than it is at the state level when people can reach out and touch you and know you and, you know, see what you're doing day to day. 
Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. And maybe we could update Wikipedia. (laughs) It says, as of 2009, you had a 30-year unbroken streak of annually attending Jazz Fest. Can you update (laughs) that date? Um, Let me see. I think... I think I may have missed one Uh since then. And actually, that wasn't quite accurate. I missed two along the way. I had two May babies. So my (laughs) husband went those years, but I actually decided nine months pregnant and the Jazz Fest were probably not a great combination. No, you're right. But I can't believe you chose (laughs) against Jazz Fest. (laughs) Thank you very much. Kathleen Sebelius, former Health and Human Services Secretary and Governor of Kansas. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. And now the spiel. Today, the U.S. Senate tied in its decision to confirm Betsy DeVos as Education Secretary. It is a shame that Arnold Schwarzenegger is running The Apprentice and is not Vice President of the United States. That could have happened, but for the Austrian birth. But I could see him presiding over the Senate and offering his deciding vote in this way. Consider that a divorce. But it wasn't. It wasn't Arnold. It was Mike Pence. And she's in. There were two GOP defectors. That wasn't enough. But in a marathon debate session on Monday, different senators took to the floor, mostly to malign Betsy DeVos, the scion of the Amway empire. Actually, she's married to the scion. She's the daughter of a millionaire in her own right. That's right. She earned that. That's her own right. But there was Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina in the Senate, and I found his reasoning curious. Here he is talking about his own educational credentials. This is so important to me. As a poor kid growing up in a single-parent household, I was not doing very well. And from 7 to 14, I drifted in the wrong direction. As a freshman in high school, I basically flunked out. I failed world geography. I may be the first senator to fail civics. I even failed Spanish and English. When you fail Spanish and English, no one, Mr. President, considers you bilingual. No one. They did call me, by the way, bi-ignant, because I cannot speak in any language. And that's where I found my unhappy self. The bi-ignant claim that did not make his way into any Tim Scott campaign material, wasn't on any signs. But I am curious as how it made its way into the Senate. I might bury that fact if I was a senator. Though, you know, Scott uses it as kind of a redemption story, that he was a bad student, that he had a good mom and learned to work hard. And apparently, through some form of schooling, he made his way to college, made a success of himself. Now, that schooling that Tim Scott got, that was public schooling. Scott was poor in South Carolina. And his teachers were presumably in unions. So that worked for Scott, but he concentrated on the kids it's not working for. Now, Scott's the only black Republican in the Senate, and he spent a lot of his speech focusing on the failures of public education for minority students in certain cities. Well, Detroit, only 13% of our majority students meet or exceed those English standards. 9%, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Nine percent of African-American kids meet or exceed the standard. 
Counting to nine, that's a decent start in meeting the proficiency standards for math. But this ploy with education, also with crime, is to cherry pick one city or another. Well, I shouldn't say cherry pick. Onion pick, because they always go with Chicago, or chrome pick, because they go with Detroit. And in those cities, which are under horrible financial strain and have a lot of other problems, the stats look terrible. But I looked up the stats in my city, the biggest city in America, the most minority students, and yes, white students perform much better than black and Hispanic students. And yes, just the pure meet or exceed proficiency standards are low and they should be higher. For black students in New York, it's 26.6%. For Hispanic students in New York, it's 27.2%. But for white students, it's 58.9%. And compared to the whole state, you know, white students in the state of New York are proficient at 46%. So the standards are pretty high. Black and Hispanic students are actually increasing. They're getting better at the standard. And they're not that far off where white students are. The point is that it's hard to educate students. It's hard to educate them to meet the proficiency standards. And I do not know that broad-based quoting of certain cities' statistics paint the correct picture. That said, I will not begrudge Tim Scott this point. I will, though, question when he praised Betsy DeVos for this. Yes, she has no official experience, but she has invested the last 28 years of her life in improving public education. Left unsaid was the fact that DeVos put her own money into Scott's campaign to the tune of $49,000 in donation. And also it should be noted, Scott sold Amway products door to door. Not necessarily a knock against him, but possibly a pain in the neck to consumers in South Carolina circa 1989. Now the Senate has another bill to consider, and it already passed the House. Just found out about this. The House by and large voted. It was a vote that included plenty of Democrats. It undid an Obama administration initiative that would have required the Social Security Administration to send records of some beneficiaries with severe mental disabilities to the FBI. What was going on is that there are about 75,000 people who are mentally disabled and receive Social Security benefits, but they cannot manage their own benefits, so they have a representative payee, someone to manage their money. So the government has a database. The Obama administration said, if we want to keep guns out of the hands of people who maybe shouldn't have guns, this is a logical place to start. This was, of course, objected to by the gun rights lobby, but it was also objected to by mental disability advocates and the ACLU. On Vox, a mental disability advocate wrote about why she opposed this Obama administration initiative. We oppose this rule because it advances and reinforces the harmful stereotype that people with mental disabilities, a vast and diverse group of citizens, are violent. She went on to say that people affected by the rule could have a range of mental disabilities, from dementia to autism to agoraphobia. And she says that using representative payees so people don't receive the checks themselves isn't nefarious, and using a representative payee doesn't make you a dangerous person. She lists some Types of people who might use a representative payee, an aging grandmother, an autistic young adult, a middle-aged man with an anxiety disorder. For them, choosing a representative payee to help them make sure their rent and utility bills get consistently paid on time, well, that she praised as a good thing. But this isn't about sympathy or correcting a stigma. This is about safety. So with all these groups of people 
Add the phrase should own a gun, right? People with dementia should own a gun. People with autism should own a gun. People with agoraphobia should own a gun. Or the aging grandmother, she should own a gun. In America, it doesn't surprise me that we can't get any gun laws passed, especially one opposed by both the ACLU and the NRA. But in my opinion, whatever harm would be done by supposedly stigmatizing those with dementia or autism, well, perhaps it can be argued that a harm could be prevented by keeping those people away from guns. And let's not forget, most gun deaths in America aren't acts of violence except against oneself. They're suicides. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Chris Berube, who proudly failed geography of North and South America. He's bicontinentally incurious. Mary Wilson also produced the gist. She failed algebra and geometry. She's bienumerate. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, failed optometry and ophthalmology. He's unbifocaled. Executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers, failed a baking class. He's bye-bye American Pie. The gist, we just didn't care for intro to human sexuality. We're on many levels by incurious. Umperu Deperu Duperu, and thanks for listening.